Hello everyone to another episode of Float Your Boat. I'm George Sabados. And I'm Brett Pattinson. Hey Brett, uh, we're well into season two now, which is uh, what a great result from where uh, where we've come from. Um, and speaking of coming a long way, today we're going to have a woman by the name of Catherine Fox. Have you heard of her? I have heard of Catherine Fox. Not to be confused with the romance novelist, the Mills and Boone style novelist, um, who has the exact same spelling in her name, Catherine Fox. Damn, it's not her? No, damn, not her. I mean, I know you... I you love read, Mills and Boone. I know, you, I know you, you read them to your wife at night. And, and Daniel uh, Boone I love as well. Of course you do. Of course you do. But, but Catherine... And Boone, I love him as well. <laughs> How many Boones? How many Boones do we like? Would I just be able to get a now, I believe I met Catherine back in 2006 at a, at a conference in New York where she was uh, trying to publish her first first novel, uh, Malicious Intent. Uh, she's since gone on to achieve great results and lots of accolades and, you know, follow a very, what, what people in Australia probably don't know, a very proud and long tradition of crime writing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited about this interview, to I, be honest. I am too. I mean, did you know Did you know that um, um, there was a lady by the name of um, uh, Davitt? Uh, her name was Ellen Davitt, and she lived uh, between 1812 and 1879. She wrote Australia's very first crime novel. Um, it was called Force and Fraud. Wow. So it's a long tradition, yeah. Mm, yeah, I guess there's been a lot of crime in Australia. There has been a lot of a lot of material to work with. <laughs> we that's come for from sure. Good convict stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. So you know, there's no shortage of of uh, material, but it's the way she packages that material. I mean, she's she's ex uh, medical practitioner, GP, and forensic scientist, I believe. But she'll be of, but she'll be able to clarify exactly what forensic. Which, that's right, because there are just so many. There are just so many laneways under that that title. So let's get her in. You know, uh, just before we start. Oh, okay. Also, her life. Did you know what her life motto is? No. Her life motto is: you take your work and your responsibility seriously, but never yourself. So I thought Catherine's going to be a fun interview because you and I certainly don't take ourselves seriously. No, that's. That, that, that kind of explains, and that, that's our motto too, in a way, isn't it? It is. Well, it let's, is. let's get her in and see how well we go. Okay, here we go. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Catherine, welcome to our little studio, our humble studio. Good to see you again after all these years. It's lovely to see you. I can't believe it's been 10 years. It has been 10 years. It can't years. have been 10 years. Oh, it has. You haven't aged a bit. George has. Oh, <laughs> he oh, has not. He looks oh, exactly the same to me. No, no. Really? Was he you that, do. Thank you. You Was do. That you big? Do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can I can I just say at the outset that I'm I am privileged to be amongst. I mean, the only out of the three of us, there are two famous people here. One ex, one current, and I'm not. 
That's all right. You're famous in my life. Thank you. Famous is, is, I don't even know what famous means. Famous is so relative. You can be famous in the tiniest little pond in the world. If that's what you want, then then great. But let, let's talk about that. I mean, you're, you're not famous in the little pond called Australia. You're actually globally recognised now in, in, in your in your genre, your field, yeah? In some ways, but it's interesting, again, you can, there's no way you could get tickets on yourself because if you no, think... No, you're not the type. I've, <laughs> I've just, I, don't, that much. I don't see why anyone would because if you talk to the romance writers mm. of the world, they may never have heard of a crime writer, although, interestingly, romance writers tend to read voraciously and widely. Um, I think they're very underestimated. But you could talk to somebody who reads nonfiction history and he'll have no idea who you are and have no idea who James Patterson is. And he's the world's biggest selling author. He's also the most prolific author. Yes, yes. So um, he's someone who doesn't rest either. But mm. you, you talk to someone. So you could say James Patterson is famous. Of course he's famous in the people who love reading crime thrillers, kids' books. He's famous along a different um, across different genres, but you'll still get people who go, who's that, never heard that, never heard of him, who's he supposed to be? And you just think, okay, you're either not a reader. So fame is, is very um, humbling, if you like, because yeah. it's certainly not universal unless you're someone like Brad Pitt. Mm. Yeah. Shall, I, shall I start by calling you Dr. Fox? No, Catherine's fine. Catherine's Thank you. Fine. <laughs> but, but we have to delve into your background a little bit because you, you've had quite a, like a, Quite a journey in your life. I like to keep learning. You like to keep learning. Yeah. So, so you've you've segued into different different fields, and you obviously have a thirst for knowledge. There's no doubt about that. Yes. My God, your novels are full of technical stuff that even I can't understand, and I've thought I was a prolific reader. Well, that's terrible. If you don't understand no, it, I that's do. terrible. I, I was kidding. I was kidding. I was, I mean, kidding. I, was going to, I was going to shoot you a few words and get you to um, explain them for me um, oh, for, no. for our listeners as well, but we'll, we'll do that later. But no. I just wanted to know, you went from uh, being a general practitioner, you yep. went to university, studied medicine, yes. became a GP. Yeah. What got into your head? that you needed to do something a little bit more on the fringe. And tell us what that was. Well, I blame the Dalai Lama. Can really? I blame the Dalai Lama for turning yeah, me into well, a life of crime? Um, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting <laughs> That's connection. an unusual quote, I <laughs> do realise. Right. Yeah, um, I was 16 and I wanted to study world religions and I was at a Catholic school and I opted to leave the Catholic school for year 11 and 12 and um, their course at, on other world religions was Protestantism and other world religions. And to me, that was farcical. So there was a, I was so lucky. I was in Canberra and there was a course at a school near me, first of its kind in Australia, called People, Beliefs and Society. A man called Lance Chapman started it and he was so innovative and so intelligent. And he was teaching philosophy and the premises for the religions and we had to study different texts. We had to go and stay with different um, people from different religious and fundamentalists. And so we stayed with Hare Krishnas, Sikhs, um, Orthodox Jewish people, um, Islamic converts, Australian women who'd converted to Islam. Wow. And, yeah, we uh, evangelical Christians, Pentecostals. Um, we had to go to the services. I hope you kept notes. I did. And it was intriguing. Dominican friars came and they were the coolest guys I'd ever seen. And it was really interesting, Buddhists, and we invited the Dalai Lama to come because he was coming to Australia that year and he wasn't addressing young people. So our, our class of 15 or whatever it was wrote to him and asked him to come and address students, and he came. 
And I he was came. he came he came because what year he was, was that, Catherine? 1982, I think okay. 1982. Yeah, big move. It was, but you know, what have we got to lose? You write to the Dalai Lama, and um, when you're 16, you go, yeah, we'll invite him. So I was completely socially inept, and I was so <laughs> I may that. not surprise some people. Um, and I was serving tea and coffee at the table, and it was that nylon, you know, that green or orange fluorescent coloured carpet that was nylon and he had his little slippers on and so he's scuffing along and then he came through everybody to the people who were serving and there were politicians Keating was there I think all these people were there that you recognized from politics so much for young people attending and um, (laughs) anyway he found his way through to the servers the menial no names who were us and he shook my hand and I got this static electric shock and, of course, I'm thinking, you know, slippers on the, the nylon carpet. Mm. That was a silly thing to wear. And um, this great electric shock. And someone in his entourage said, oh, His Holiness, um, you'll find an energy transfer because he's reading your past and future lives. And I thought, I just thought it was static. like a static. <laughs> Van de Graaff generator. Anyone else would think it was static. Yeah, because my hair was facing the ceiling. And, um, yeah, so anyway, that was, and being brought up Catholic, I was kind of, sceptical about everything at this stage now that I was exploring other religions. Anyway, he gave his talk and he was really interesting. And then he came up and um, came back at the end and said, um, did the same thing, came and shook my hand, this time no static electricity. And he said, I'm so glad to have finally met you. And I thought, right, okay, whatever that means. And um, part of me thought, what a fantastic line for a cult leader to walk into a room, target the minion and say, I'm so glad to have finally met you, how to make them feel special. I thought, what, if you had malicious intent, that would be the best line ever mm-hmm. and to, to recruit. And I wasn't accusing him of that. But, um, again, someone in his entourage said, oh, perhaps His Holiness likes the book you haven't written yet. And Dopey Dora Me says, oh, no, I'm going to do medicine. And the minion of his just went, hmm, well, think about it. And so... I've thought about it a lot and I plant, it planted a seed that day, whether it was intentional, whether it was unintentional, who knows. Um, he would have known too that we were the top English students and we were studying philosophy and so it was quite, you wouldn't have to be Einstein to predict potentially one of us would write a book. Um, but it was really interesting for me that little kernel was planted even though I was off to do medicine and my first book was called Malicious Intent. And that never left me, the whole idea of behavioural modification and recruiting for cults and religions and people's motives. I always look at people's motives before I make any judgments about anything. You could say the most heinous thing in the world, but if your motives were pure and you were really trying to help someone, then I will forgive you. But And I won't judge you for that. But if your motives are impure, I've always told my kids that. Always look at motives before anyone says anything or does anything and then make your judgments whether you like the behaviour or the words or not. So... Anyway, the Dalai Lama. And a few years ago, I was sitting at a crime panel with a crime writer who actually used to be a Buddhist monk. And she burst out laughing and she said, he says that to everybody. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I thought, you know what? It doesn't matter. It it didn't matter. matter. It didn't matter. But did you send him a thank you? No, I've not. But I imagine (laughs) he might have heard me saying he's turned me to a life of crime one day. But um, (laughs) no, he was just the most gentle, calming cutie. He was, I've got a photo with him and he's still so cute. And he's nibbling his little sandwich and he's having his cup of tea. And he was genuinely charismatic. Back when we met, 
you just had the one novel, it was either fermenting, you had it in... No, I had it out. You yeah. had it out. You yeah. had it out It was coming stuff. out in the US. It was one novel. Yeah. And now you're up to how many novels? Eight. Eight novels. Does that include the James Patterson novel? No, seven I've written on my own. Yes. And um, the eighth one was Private Sydney, and I co-wrote that with James right. Patterson. Yeah. Now... That's a very interesting case, the way he goes around the world, you know, linking up with authors. It's almost like, a, you know, he, he lends you his brand, that kind of thing. But does he, anyway, we'll talk about that later. But, but, but specific to your, your novels, um, I, uh, Anya Crichton is, is your heroine, heroine yeah. in, throughout all these novels. And every time I read you know, anything about her, when she responds. I listen to the audiobooks, by the way. Right. And I think of you. I think that you're actually speaking. Now, do you have that level of understanding of forensics. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I've and done sexual you... assault examinations and things, yeah. But, but how did you get into that? Like, well, I needed what... to, to be a better doctor for my patients and to be their advocate because if a woman... A lot of people complain that they're running late at the GP and, and get really cranky, but they have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. And you can have a lady, for example, come in 8 o'clock in the morning, um, say, I need the morning after pill, it's just a script, it's an emergency, so you see them. And then when you ask why they need the morning after pill, it comes out, I had one lady whose husband's boss raped her at the Christmas party and she didn't want to say anything because he'd lose his job and um, she'd had a drink and all this sort of thing. So... You can't just do that in a second. Yeah, sure, write you the morning after pill. Come back when, when I've got time. You need to do that. And that's when the crisis, people admit the crisis occurred and that's when they break down. So I to become a better advocate, I needed to know how to do a rape kit, how to do um, what I needed legally to document for domestic violence victims or assault victims. I needed to explore that. So And it was fascinating to me. So I went off and did forensic medicine courses and learnt more about it. But you seem to be quite a. I mean, you're a normal human being, right? You're not. You're not. Uh, you're not uh, autistic in any way. You, you're not disassociated from emotions. How no, I'm the opposite. Keep, I've got well, too much empathy. Keep, yeah. How did you keep that separation between what you saw and what you're investigating and how you felt about it? Because a lot of the stuff you must have. Said, that you yeah, that was very difficult. I think one of the the best advantages of um, having empathy is you do make a good doctor. You make a good advocate if you're knowledgeable and you don't take on everybody's problems but the reality is when I was seeing people whose lives were threatened whose lives were ruined um, I couldn't leave that at home and if I saw a, a battered woman who decided I'd arrange emergency accommodation someone to pick up the kids and even give her money and then find out she was going back and I understand why she would go back because she's living with the fear and I wasn't of being killed. And some of these men were so close to their escalation had, had increased so much that these women were at risk of being killed. To then sit, go home on the weekend, I would have the radio on, the television on, listening in case those women were murdered. And it was awful because you've got, you can't disclose because you could get them killed if you tell anyone police included if they don't want you to tell the police it's very very difficult because the husband will know and that is when they're at highest risk when someone else finds out too so I could not switch off and you're supposed to think that the patient is the one with the disease but it's very very difficult when you're diagnosing cancers in young people and seeing their parents and also seeing young kids who mother thinks 
you know, the 14, 15-year-old is behaving strangely and she wants to know what's wrong and then you find out she was raped at a party but she doesn't want her parents to know because she'd been drinking or because she's fearful that she'll never be allowed out again, no one will believe her, even her friends said you thought he was hot so you asked for it. There's just this can of worms and then the mother says to you, but she's under 16, you have to tell me. And yet between 14 and 16 medically, it breaks your heart to see a mother so distraught not knowing what's wrong with their child, but you also have a duty of care to that child. So what was your, what was your coping mechanism for all of that? Um, burying, I suppose, as best I could. Mm. But in the end, I think you have a cup and it fills up. And once it's full, it's full. And I think I had a, um, a threatened, I was threatened by a patient who was quite violent and I was eight months pregnant and he was going to rape me and the world was going to know about it. And I don't know how serious he was, but it was frightening enough. And the next day he turned up at my house. So That's pretty frightening. It is. And he knew my little boy's name. and. What? You find out information. Power is information is power, and and mm. somebody who's a sociopath or has malintent will find information. And of course, you find the secretaries of. He says, "Oh, you know, she's pregnant. Oh, have I seen her before? Does she work somewhere else? Oh, yeah, she works so and so. And oh, is that her first child? Oh no, little so and so was in with us today, and he's gorgeous. And you know, mm. secretaries can accidentally leak information, and they mean well. Mm. Um, but it's interesting how somebody who's after manipulation will find a way to, to get to you. So it's not that uncommon. A lot of women are threatened. A lot, a lot of women GPs are sexually harassed, sexually assaulted or threatened. Well, how did you address that that situation? How did it go away? Um, I changed practice. I was lucky in that I went on maternity. Not, you don't get maternity leave. I just stopped working. Yeah. And um, then I started, I tossed up whether I'd go back or not and then my own family practice said, oh, look, we're desperate for a woman. You'd, you'd be great. Would you like to work? And I needed some money. My husband's doing a PhD at the time. So I did some evening shifts there. But going to work in fear and doing house calls at night in fear, mm. I just, the shine sort of wore off it. And I knew I'd always wanted to write. So it prompted me to start writing articles because I discovered I could get money being paid for that, which helped pay mortgage or buy groceries. And then the writing actually became far more of a passion and a need, and it was like breathing. I couldn't stop. And now, a word from our sponsors. This is about the 400th take, listeners. <laughs> this is our, this is our um, for a male sponsor, Mungrel Joes. Yes, Mungrel Joes. So, hey, Brett, what keeps you going? I'm not sure what you're implying. I don't like where your mind's going with this one, Brett, but uh, without getting personal, there are many times I need a hit, and not from a bus. What keeps me going is a steaming hot cup of coffee, and not just any coffee. Ah, you must be talking about Mungrel Joe's. Yeah, our proud sponsor. Yes, that deep, rich, tasty and fulfilling coffee that perks you up, puts lead in your pencil, makes you glisten, and puts hairs on your chest. But what does it do for men? Boom, boom. It brings out the mongrel in you. <laughs> God, seriously, folks. Seriously, folks. Mongrel Joe's. That's my line. No, That's your line. Mongrel Joe's is the best taste experience ever. It's 100% Australian. And not only is it a performance coffee, it's strong and smooth. Like me, of course, George. <laughs> it's the greatest coffee on earth. The world's greatest coffee. Is it really? <laughs> yes, it is. Jump online at mongreljoes.com.au and give it a shot. 
excuse the pun. No, 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 you didn't have to say that. Well, it's you printed it on the page. You're George. on, you're on fire, Brent. I am on. We fire. could have scratched that out. And just for our listeners to put, put it, put in a discount code, float your boat, and you will get a special discount on your first order. Remember that it's float your boat. One word. If you love coffee, you should try Mungle Joe's. I'm telling you, folks. Aside from this great script that George wrote, <laughs> and it was so obvious you were reading it. <laughs> yes, George, it was. <laughs> anyway, listeners, Mungle Joe's. It's it's the best. So then, in the world of crime, so yeah. to speak, a criminal act yes. can go unaddressed and frequently does. That's what you're saying. No, no, no. It has potential to. I, I have no idea about how often. Well, we how don't common. know how to measure. Look, all I know is the easiest know, person to kill is someone who's expected to die. So if you want to get away with murder, kill someone who's expected to die. Should we be saying that? <laughs> well, should, <laughs> we, should we? Should we? Should we? Maybe <laughs> should we be not. Giving people ideas. No, no. I hope, I hope your uh, general manager's not in the office today, George. Uh, it looks like he's but ready to die. <laughs> the reality is, not everyone gets a post mortem. It's not a perfect world. So there's there's ways for you know errors to slip in, and people are doing their best. But that's the reason I wrote those seven books to start with, is that these people are working damn hard. They're doing their very best to find the truth. And I wanted to tell their truths and as well. And there's always a struggle for money. There that's, is. That's a theme throughout your books. And it's been glamorised so much through detective shows. And, and they have infinite funding yeah, on all the television shows. Mm-hmm. And that's not the reality at all. Have you ever thought of putting together a TV series on you know, forensic science? An Australian forensic science pr- series. I haven't had time yet. <laughs> I've been doing other things. It, it sounds fascinating. It's fascinating, like the Australian real CSI. But there are a lot of crime shows, I think, that, that are trying that at the moment too, and true crime things. Right. And um, I never want to touch unsolved mysteries because I can't understand why anyone would bother reading an unsolved mystery. Why would you read a book about an unsolved mystery? There's no ending. There's no solve. Well, unless there's... There's no solution. Grabbing. Yeah, but... To me, unsolved mysteries are the most frustrating things. I understand raising awareness, and I, if there's one thing I would love to solve, it's the Beaumont kidnappings. Right. I was born um, a few weeks after them, but we grew up in Adelaide, and Mum had four kids in five years, and Dad, and they were terrified that we'd get out of their sight. We couldn't ride bikes. That one crime affected the way my childhood was was done, how my parents raised us as so children. So did that stick with you all that time, yep. do you think? very first thing I looked up on the internet when I got online was what happened to the Beaumont children. Oh, that's... That's the very first thing. Could have so, looked up anything. So that was pre-Dalai Lama? No, I was older than 16 when the internet, right. when I got on the internet, right, yeah. okay. Well, I was... So I'll... there's a there's a couple of connecting yeah. dots, isn't there's there? Yeah, there's a ripple. There's a ripple that's gone right through. Catherine, I've got a question for you, which yes. is a bit left of centre. What what books do you like to read? Mm. Oh, I love to read biographies. Um, anything to do with Hollywood musicals, <laughs> I will read, particularly from the 50s and 60s. Um, the great, the golden era of cinema, if you like. Um, 
all the old movie stars. Everyone my mum loved, because we used to watch the Sunday afternoon movies. Okay, so did I. There's a great um, podcast that you should listen to called... Um, what's a song called? You Must Remember... The, you Must Remember This. It's called that. But it's ah. all about those that golden As time year. goes by. It's so great. Such a great podcast. Well, I read all the bio. I've got Ginger Rogers by my bed at the moment, her life story, and um, just anybody with anything interesting. Brooke Shields, mm. I'm reading hers at the moment, her story about her mother, because anything to do with relationships, anything to do, I love history, I love anything that is enlightening. I've read The Six Wives of Henry VIII, the 500-page-plus um, version, and just anything that intrigues and can set off ideas, any mm. experiences that I haven't had, mm. I love to disappear into other people's worlds. And you love Pixar. I love Pixar. What? what, what? Are you, do you love Pixar? I love Pixar. You're never too old for Pixar, though. You've been there. I've too, been there you? three times. Oh, I'm yeah? so lucky. I was invited to go and, and visit. And, and what's your favourite Pixar movie? Monsters, Inc. Oh, I love Monsters, Inc. I love the premise that, that it's mm. been flipped, that instead of children being scared of the monsters, the monsters are terrified of the children. And I think it's so simple, it's beautiful, mm. it's pure, it's just, it's everything, and it's timeless. I think the best thing that's ever happened when I had kids was Pixar, because I got to see all these fantastic movies. Yeah, brilliant. Just, it's just so many of them, there's a list of them. That... I got to meet John Lasseter once, that was pretty really? awesome. It was the premiere of Monsters University. A friend of mine's an animator there, director of animation, and um, we met through a writing course and stayed in touch. And so I was just so, so excited to go there. You were and like a kid in a lolly. Oh, my gosh, I was. And I said to my husband and kids, I'm, like, I'm so sorry, but this is the best day of my life. Forget the wedding, forget <laughs> the births. This doesn't rate. Do you not, do you not keep in mind that you're, a, you're an internationally credible author? Like you can st you can hold your head up high. You oh, but that's, it doesn't occur to you because I I was just thinking mm. I'm in the presence of some of the best storytellers of of all lifetimes, yeah. and it's so interesting because um, I showed one of them one of the writers um, one of my books, and he was he's like a ten year old boy. They're all like ten year old boys, and he said, oh, "You did this all by yourself." And I said, "Well, yes, that's what novelists do." <laughs> and he said, you wrote. Hundreds of pages on your own. Wow. <laughs> it's just because film's so collaborative, and mm. especially those guys, they're really collaborative. They meet constantly and they all critique and throw one liners in, they all come up with gags, all that sort of thing. And the idea of you sitting alone doing this whole project all by yourself. Mm. And it just, I was in stitches because that's their reaction when you've written a book. And, and they're so, I guess they're, they're, they're so freeform. They, yeah. They're almost Aspie. You couldn't get them to, to sit down in. No, they just, for... oh, just it, they're so interested. They're so yeah. interested too in stories. And the reason um, I actually connected, I was doing one of their courses and two of the guys came out to Australia and everybody, I turned around and couldn't understand why this um this writer was sort of looking at me in the audience and I thought, can't be me. And then I thought, did I have something up my nose, my teeth, what? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. And I turned around and everybody was on their phones looking down, tweeting, oh, my God, I'm um, doing a Pixar workshop. And and he was wondering why you weren't. <laughs> and I was the one looking and he was making allusions and references to other films and comedies and Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes and all that sort of thing. And I was engaged. I was really engaged and I... 
apparently have an expressive face. So he was reacting to my reactions. And when morning tea hit, all the young people just took off for the free coffee and tea. And I sat there and he just sat beside me and said, so what's your story? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm just a novelist. And that's when the, oh, you do this all by yourself came out. <laughs> and we got chatting and it was so interesting. He then at the end of the seminar said, look, if you're ever in San Francisco, come and visit Pixar and I'll show you around. And, and we stayed in touch. Wow. wow. I'm sure your kids would have loved it. Uh, well, my daughter, actually, she was... Um, she must have been 11 or 13 at the time. And she made a little boo out of Fimo clay. And she's very creative too. And she gave it to me as a good luck charm because I was having Hollywood meetings about series and, and screenplays and things. And she took it, she gave it to me as a good luck charm because that's her favourite character. And I snuck boo into into Pixar and it was the premiere of Monsters University. So I got all these photos of, of Boo doing silly things all over Pixar and the security guards were helpful and they were helping me and sneaking photos and all that sort of thing. And then there was a big dinner and this lady who sat next to me said, do you know what, someone will get a real kick out of that, the little girl in Australia made Boo, I'll go and introduce you. And it was John Lasseter who started Pixar with Steve Jobs. Mm. And... Anyway, I went over and I felt so bad because he was thrilled. He thought this was a gift for him. <laughs> yeah, to take it away. No, I'm sorry. You're just allowed to hold Boofer photos and then you have yeah. to give her back. Sorry, buddy, it's not yours. Uh, yeah. yeah, because he, he loves all the sort of memorabilia and, and ephemera from, yeah. from Pixar too. So it was just the loveliest, loveliest atmosphere. And to be around creative people, it's really difficult when you're not around them normally, especially as a writer, you tend to be solo a lot of the time. You work in a silo. Yeah, and it's you're a vacuum because you're not getting feedback necessarily either. And just to be around creative people, I just love going to conferences mm. and things because there's this amazing energy and inspiration mm. and people are happy to share and be there. What we, I think that's why we like doing Float Your Boat. Part of it is we get to meet amazing people like yourself. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, well, likewise. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, that's the great thing we get to do, I guess. Um, and you get to do it all around the world. Well, passionate people. I once sat for two hours um, with a man in Tasmania who was passionate about fly fishing and he was explaining to me the intricacies of, of fly, making a fly for his fishing mm. and if you'd said to me you're going to spend two hours sitting on a one-to-one -one with this man <laughs> I would have yeah right yeah um <laughs> had a lot of things to do in my head so I, and I sat here with this man he was in his 70s and he had me enveloped in his passion and I just wanted to hear more because he was so excited and so interesting the way he told it and mm. sold his passion and I think if your mind's closed what a horrible world you live in well, that's that. I mean, that's exactly what we're trying to share with people. Uh, that, that that there are people such as you, yourself who you're successful in one area, but that's that doesn't define you. You you have so many interests in other areas, and you know you have that curiosity that keeps burning that flame. That flame, which you know you just want to learn more and do more, and 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 as your motto states, have fun along the yeah. way. Yeah. Now, death and you know, forensics doesn't sound like, like yeah, fun. Yeah, not fun, yeah. But it's it's interesting from a scientific point of view and it 
feeds the mind. Um, but I also wanted to tell victim stories because from my point of view, all the Agatha Christie's and all the stories that have been done, the CSI's, mm. Law and Order, all those shows, the body's, the body's the catalyst for the story. Yeah. Mm. And you move on then and you've got the court case and it's never about the victim anymore. And I wanted to be a victim's advocate and tell the victim's side, if you like, that they were, they were the whole reason for this story. They're not incidental to the story. And I think too often we forget the victims and we get caught up in all the did he do it, didn't he? But what about the poor victim? So you keep on going back to forensics. I keep on going back to Pixar. Yeah. If you had a superhero power, what would it be? What would my super... um, Because I was talking about the uh, Invincibles before. Healing. Healing. I think, yeah, healing. What sort of healing? What sort of healing? Mm. Um, I'd love to heal grief, but you can't, and I understand that. Um, I would love to heal terminal illnesses in children and painful. Mm. I'd love to heal dementia because mm. I think that's one of the cruelest things. Yeah, I'll say. For family. Mm. Not necessarily the cruelest for the person with dementia, but for the family. Mm. How does a doctor find a good doctor? Same as everybody else. It just else. popped in my head. I Word of mouth. Because you know a lot. You know, Word so. of mouth, trust. Um, um, well, for for surgeons and things like that, when I had I had my have two half knee replacements last year and I had them done at once, I couldn't afford to lose brain cells having more than one anaesthetic, I decided, in case it affects memory. Um, <laughs> I see you thought about it. Like I did, I did. <laughs> and um, I wanted to look at, complication rates and I'm lucky my husband's a specialist as well in his field so he sees a lot of complication rates from other doctors Mm. and it's quite handy to know okay who does do good aftercare who does who's technically very sound you might be technically brilliant but if you don't do follow-up and aftercare in the hospital and people get complications then you're no good to anybody Mm. so I think having some insider knowledge definitely does help what does hubby do He's a cardiologist. Oh, well, it'll save you. It'll <laughs> save you if you. That's a, a walk in the park. That's great. That's great. <laughs> He's very busy. There must be a lot of interesting conversations. I was going to say, the table. he, he um, table would be interesting. No, 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 no. We don't no. like talking about work. Well, right. confidentially, he can't. And yeah, a lot of yeah. people um, assume we do talk about them. And I've been approached by his patients saying. Your husband told me, told me he was going to tell you about me, and I'm thinking, okay, what, what, where's this going? And it turns out she's not having an affair; she's just a patient. But she'd assumed that I would know all about her. Right. And um, no, we have a lot of other different things to talk about. My husband's really interesting. He loves photography. He goes off four wheel driving in the bush and remote places, oh, yeah. and he's so respectful. He's just done um, indigenous tours and things and found Indigenous stories and he's come home with all these fantastic stories. Oh, I'd love to talk to him because that's uh, that's one of my dreams to do that. I, I go go into the bush on, um, to remote places all yeah. the time. Yeah, well, he goes to get away from phone calls that's and being on call all night. Yeah. That's what I do. That or aeroplane trips. Yeah. Like, you know, the, yep. But, but it, sounds, it sounds fascinating. But your knees, are you now a sprinter? <laughs> you, um, no, I so, run backwards faster than I run forwards. Always have done. <laughs> Always have. There's not an event for that somehow, and I don't understand why. But you, you've, um, you have a, a pastime that you, you're into. I which, do. Uh, which, um, yeah, know, I was sort of. I, I had. Tell us about. 
I had issues with my legs as a child and I was mm. put into leg irons to stand up because I was standing up on the insides of my ankles, which is not very good. Like a you know, right on the insides with your knees totally together. How is that possible? Yeah, it's not it's not good for it doesn't last. So they put me in leg irons for a while and then I was put into ballet to try and oh, strengthen and all I that see. sort of thing. I see. Um, what was that due to? Um, probably hips interned. Yep. As well, but nobody addressed that because mm. I didn't dislocate because I didn't turn out enough to do that. So I was put into ballet to try and get me to turn out and do that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, anyway, um, it's very bad mechanics and dynamics. So my kneecaps have always um, tracked outwards and upwards, and so mm. they eroded my thigh bones into crumbles. Oh, wow. So, yeah, a little bit painful. So for about 10 years I had limited mobility and um, stairs and things. I couldn't have done the stairs today um, really? That long ago, yeah. So I had them done and then was in rehab, physical rehab for a long time and I've still got kneecap issues. But um, So I will be. I did three hours on Wednesday of rehab. I do that every week and it's not easy. But I was in Disneyland and my daughter was dancing in Disneyland and um, I went to see a swing band on the Saturday night. I love swing and big band music and I thought I could just sit and watch, and there I was, and I've got these keloid scars that are hideous, and I don't normally wear anything to show them, but I was in shorts, it was really, really hot, and um, I sat down, and I thought everyone would leave me alone, but no, that meant you were open to be dancing with yeah, the group sit, who came. By yourself, so, so there's, a, there's a protocol, is there? Apparently, there yes. You yeah. sit down in the global theatre, mm. the, the circular theatre, and right. you're fair game. And yeah. oh, this right? gentleman asked me to dance. So and you I, have to remain standing. If you no, 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 stand, stand outside. Stand outside. Oh. So there's a swing group who comes every Saturday night from Anaheim. And anyway, I was asked to dance, and I said, I don't know if I can do any of this. And... Lo and behold, I did, and I had biggest Made endorphin release. Um, yeah. So I came back here, and I walked into a studio called Move With Me in Castle Hill, and it's a young bloke who just started up his studio. And I walked in and um, left two and a half hours later, and I had lessons booked, and I love it, absolutely love it. So um, that's why you've got a six-foot cardboard boyfriend in your office. Right? <laughs> oh, what's that about? Oh, and What's he's, he's my Christmas tree too. Oh, is you put your, a, is you, your Christmas tree? You put a hat on him and some tinsel. We'll put that on the on the website. It's Elvis. Oh, Elvis. Elvis, 1968 oh. Elvis. Oh, wow, wow. So you're a lover of Elvis. Yeah, I always yeah. have been. Yeah, me too. It's like watching moving art for me. He just It's the most beautiful face I've ever seen. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No offence to anyone I know and love, mm-hmm. but um, for him, it, it just <coughs> just the smile... He's pretty amazing. I, I I like the sort of Eddie Cochran's and that, that sort of part of that 50s thing. But, yeah, swing dancing's great fun. It is. Rock and roll dancing's great fun. And the music is just – but I'll, I'll do ballroom as well because mm. the technique and they're very similar. Yeah. Um, tango's been harder to do with my knees, mm. so I'm only now starting to do that more seriously. Yeah. Um, but do salsa – um, hustle is really interesting too because that sort of stemmed from cha-cha and swing combos as well. And um, what is it? Waltz, Foxtrot. My dad won my mum. My she was engaged to someone else and he, the only time he could be socially acceptable to be alone with her and close was on the dance, dance floor, yeah. through social dances. Right. And she, he said she was like watching a cloud float and um, he made damn sure he had the best Foxtrot. So you, so I take it, I take it dancing helps you get out of your head. Yes. 
It does. It does. It brings you back into you. I'm accused of overthinking every move, but um, (laughs) sometimes I do lose myself, yes. Well, in tango, you've got to be careful of that because the man always leads, you see, and that's always the hardest part when you're dancing with a, a, a woman that thinks too much because they're trying to think of what, you know, what's what we need to anticipate bimbos. yes we need bimbos no no it's just it's, a, it's an Argentinian tradition <laughs> you need know. a trust yeah. yeah I have been told in some ways I'm extremely leadable although most people who know me would disagree with that except on a dance floor yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm good at following as far as I can tell if it's a good lead but um, once you get more complicated I start overthinking things right. it sounds to me like you're a la- lady of leisure I mean, <laughs> I mean, aren't you supposed to be right, squirreled away in a dark room somewhere? Right? Oh, I am on too. Your, on your typewriter, still just doing away. that. But it's such a sedentary job. Yeah. I've also discovered, you know, posture issues and things like that from being so hunched over a computer all the time. Right. And for me now, it's not a matter of choice. Mm-hmm. There's no other surgical solution for my knees, mm-hmm. so I need to strengthen muscles that have never been used. And I'm starting to – we nearly had a party at rehab the other day when I they said, oh, your muscle's about like the size of a 50-cent piece here that's never been there before. Right. And starting to grow. It is starting to grow. And it's mm. it's a lot of hard work because all my life I've walked the wrong way. I've used the wrong muscles. Yep. I've made do. Um, and I've had to unlearn and relearn how to walk, which is not that – it's, it's more, far more challenging than it sounds. It's not that easy. And I've still got the mechanical issues that I'm working on. But if I just sit at a computer all day, I will go back to being – I've lost 15 kilograms, um, pre-diabetes, I'm reversing that. All the sort of health issues that I'd been terrified of getting, I was getting through no choice. And I never want to be immobile to that state again. And I need to be healthy and I love being healthier. But I need to put the hours in, just like everybody. It's Mm. not good enough to just go, yeah, I'll go for a walk tomorrow. You might want to look at a treadmill desk. Have you seen them? I have, but no, I can't do that to music and write. No. <laughs> I can't. I need silence to write. So, so, so the constant whirring of wheels. Yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> there's already wheels whirling. In yeah, well, yeah, yeah, there's cogs spinning in there. So what's next, Catherine? Well, what's next? Yeah, what's next? What's like, next? What do you dream? What, what are you dreaming of doing that you haven't done yet? Or is there something you're doing now that's going to take yeah, a I lot think, of time? Or? Well, I've just written a screenplay and submitted that to producers. I've been extremely lucky that um, American producers were asking for the screenplay before it was finished. Wow, that's um, fantastic. Yeah, and that's based on a true life story and mm-hmm. it's a drama and it's character driven, so it's very different from crime. Mm. And I also have um, some comedy that I really... I'm so sorry, John Clark and I talked about a comedy Oh, really? series wow. a while ago, 10 years ago now, and he was waiting for me ago. to have time. He was waiting for me to have time to write it because he loved the idea. Wait, he? he didn't wait. That mm, was really sad. sad. But I think he was. He had belief in me and my ability to write comedy when everyone else knows me is writing serious things. So I think I'd like to honour him and, and do a comedy, not necessarily what we were talking about together, mm. but... I'd love to do a comedy. That'd be fun. If he had faith in me, I think that's, that's that, that was lovely. That's definitely a reason. Yeah. That's like the Dalai Lama of comedy. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Oh, my gosh. He was the brightest mind I've ever met. And I've met some was intelligent people. Yeah. We sat for two hours um, once in a little coffee nook in Melbourne, and I don't drink coffee, so that was a big surprise. But 
we I had to think so much faster than normal to mm. keep up with him and he was so funny and the circular stories he could link everything back to the beginning of a story yeah. and I was in fits of laughter because he was using my own words to enhance another story and and it was just the most incredible experience I was exhausted at the end of it it was like running a mental marathon being with him for two hours but I'll never ever forget that and and thought he was wonderful. So he was wonderful. Who's the m- most wonderful person you've ever met? Or, the, or the, the most inspiring person, maybe? Um, I'd have to say my husband and children, to be completely honest. Mm. That's a get-out-of-jail card. It's not a get-out-of-jail card. It's honestly not. Because I think the kids are so much better versions than we were at the same age wiser, mm. more confident, more caring, more more aware of the outside world. Mm. And um, my, they put up with me, which is pretty incredible. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm trying to learn to sew. I'm doing all these different things because I'm, I'm, I just I want to learn new things the whole time and that can't be very easy to live with. Mm. But I just, they, the three of them make me a better person. Tell me, though, I mean, apart from this passion of dancing that you've just, you know, discovered, I mean, you're also an advocate of the health and literacy group. Yeah, um, health and literacy, uh, you cannot disconnect the, the two. People. Indigenous especially yep. because health but and literacy is so poor. It applies to everyone. Now, what, what I mean, I'll, without sounding too too dumb on the subject, I mean, you are... There's no dumb. Well, there's less informed, or less informed. there's um, less interested, but Thank there's you. no dumb. See, Brett, well, stop never, calling I, me that. There's no said, dumb. I've there's never no said dumb. you were dumb. No such thing as a stupid question, and there's no, <laughs> no such dumb. Thing is a stupid question. So this, look, you know, I mean, literacy is a big thing for me as well. Like yeah. In my family, it's, it's you know, we 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 really place a lot of emphasis on that. Um, but Indigenous kids have it tough. Yep. That's obviously you know what you're passionate about, but how did you get into being an advocate for? It came a bit more from medicine and looking at some of the health stats, and um, some of the studies have shown that if you increase an Indigenous girl's reading age by for every year you increase her reading age, mm. you can increase survival of her child by up to four years. Oh, wow! So wow. in other words, if a girl reads to the level of a six-year-old, chances are her children won't survive infancy the chances of surviving infancy are a lot less. And if you get her to a seven-year-old, then she might at least, the right. first four years, they've got a better chance of surviving. And it's as simple as that. So literacy, how do you apply for a driver's licence? How do you apply for a job? How do you do anything? How do you read a medicine bottle for mm. your child mm. if you can't read? There are things we take for granted so often, um, working out budget for your house if you can't read and you don't do maths and literacy, it's even basic literacy. I've had patients who I've had to fill out um, applications for, for welfare or for anything, or even Medicare, mm. and the reality is their wives didn't know they couldn't read. And the wives will tell you they sit there reading the paper every morning and they go to the sports section and they'll sit there for ages not reading. So even yeah, these right. their partners don't necessarily know, life partners. So you can hide it. But it's, I see that as a fundamental right, just like water, because without that, your health will suffer, everything will suffer as a result. Wow. 
Yeah, and uh, and it's everywhere. It's not just Indigenous yeah. Australians. It it's, is everywhere. It's generally, it, and it's getting, it's sort of it's getting worse because there isn't as much emphasis on that in in families. Yeah. Well, language is getting worse too. Now kindies, um, uh, they're having to employ more speech pathologists because there are more ch- kindy children starting with speech impediments and defects mm. and parents aren't correcting them. And then if you look around cafes and you look around anywhere, walking up the ramp to the Woolies from the car park, two kids with iPads and they must have been two, three, and they're, read, they're watching movies on iPads as they walk up the ramp. And uh, yeah. not even the supermarkets of interest to them and cafe where you see mum on a phone, dad on his phone, two kids with electronic devices. And to me, that's the most wonderful opportunity to sit and chat and socialise. Mm. So I think literacy is becoming less important to time poor people, mm. but it's more important than ever. Well, apart from, um, apart from the social aspect, which yeah. is powerful as well. And conversation um, and communication. Correct, correct. Yeah, that's that's out the window. I mean, I'm having this, we're having this argument with our daughter who's nine, and she says all of my friends have got phones at school, and I'm like, you're not having a phone. It's simple. You're not having a phone until you go to high school. But oh, but what happens if there's an and they've always got loads of reasons why. You can borrow your friend's phone. But she's not going. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> but you've got a spare one, Dad. I don't care if I've got a spare one. We had the same rule. And it's interesting now our kids are 16 and 18, their kids will come, their friends will come over and sit at our table for four or five hours and they might occasionally respond to a buzz on their phone but by and large they're chatting. They are chatting. And I'm, that's one of the things I'm proudest of, I think. I like to see that. I, I like that. I like seeing that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I, you know, I often get on buses and trains where I yeah. think friends get on. They're not chatting to each other. Yep. Mm. Well, yeah, you yeah. see that everywhere, right? Bus stops on yeah. the streets, everywhere. Yeah, walking down the street with their phones. It's just crazy stuff, and and it's it's the the, the social aspect that's being lost, not just and the empathy literacy. and empathy and empathy. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, what's ending sad. relationships with a, cur- a text. SMS. I know that's just crazy, right? And it's, it's frightening. You know, at least, at least, I mean, we didn't have we didn't have, as I say to my girls, we didn't have texting in our day. We had to be ballsy enough to actually face them yes. or call them up yes. and talk to them. Uh, and that took courage. It and took... to ask somebody out took courage. Yeah. Yeah. Last time I was in Hong Kong, I, I go there a lot for business. Um, and in such a short period of time, it was only a couple of months I was there. And uh, the last time this wasn't happening, but everywhere you go now, all the young people are on their phones. But they're not just talk. They're not just texting or messaging. They're now videoing their steps as they walk. So there's people running into old people, the kids, and the kids are offended by the fact that they've run. It, it, it was I couldn't believe it. I got onto a train, uh, one of the subways, and there was everybody, every single person was on their phone, or they were videoing themselves, or selfing, or I was like, oh my god, and I'd forgotten my phone. I'd left it at home. I'd got to the airport and went, oh, shit, I've left my... I thought, this is a catastrophe. Which begs the question, how's the world of um, novels coming along? I mean, are they grow- is our sales growing or diminishing? Interestingly, um, e-book sales went on the rise and they're on the decline and print book books are on coming the rise back. again. Same as records, music. Yes, vinyl. Interesting vinyl. you should say that because there's, there's, there's a 
kinesthetic tactile, aspect, yeah. tactile aspect to... There's an olfactory, the smell. Mm, and, and I I mean, I have a library at my place of work uh, with all my books stacked up and it looks amazing. You can't get that off a Kindle. <laughs> like no, but you, you can travel with a Kindle. You can. And I can, can. put 200 books on my iPad. Well, why, would they, why would they be declining, do you think, the, the electronic versions? Because I thought that was just growing and growing and growing and growing. It's a surprise. I thought it would continue to grow too. I was one of the first people who had a Kindle because I saw this coming. And I even remember talking to a publisher saying, this is the way of the future. And she was, oh, no, it'll never take off. Just oh. like talkies. They're just a novelty. Yeah, no one will want to watch people talk. Talking. <laughs> well, yeah, and colour telly, whoa, that'll never Pick take off. Yeah, <laughs> beta. Did you get beta, yeah, beta video right. recorders? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, bring back the silent movies. So, wagon wheels, cars will never take yeah, off. That's, yeah, right. yeah. that's what I think is really interesting is that books, I don't think they'll ever be out of print entirely because. People love that tactile sensation and it's an experience mm. and you are immersed into it and you don't have to worry if your battery's running out. Um, I actually have an idea for a story that I really want to write that's a comedy and it's to do with this generation and their dependence on, on devices and taking for granted simple things. So if the electricity grid went out? they'd be lost. Oh, heavens. Oh, you've seen the memes that um, catastrophe, major catastrophe, teenagers with that internet for six hours. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The tidal wave comes. Yeah, how do you... So so my daughter, my daughters, when they were young, they would say things like, oh, Dad, we'd be driving somewhere. Oh, Dad, it's so boring. Could we use your phone? I'd say, nope. You know why? You need to learn how to deal with boredom. Yes. You need need that. I'm never bored. when the good times have hit. Well, yeah, that's true. Entertain thyself. We used to play games in the car like, I don't spy with my little eye, just to make it more difficult. They're like, how do we know what you're thinking? (laughs) That's the challenge. Yeah, yeah. We were driving down Cleveland Street the other day, which features in your first novel. Interesting. I I just don't know. Did you traipse all around Sydney to find locations or you just conjured it up in your your mind? Oh, I traipsed. You traipsed. Now I Google map. So I, I pointed out to a pub that I used to sit on the the, the sandstone step in corner of Cleveland, corner of Cleveland and, Cra- and Elizabeth Street. Street. I used to sit there for hours entertaining myself with yeah. a pink lemonade and just my people watching thoughts in my yeah. head because my dad would go in and have you know a few beers and I wasn't allowed in the pub. But and I and I just said, well, kids couldn't do that today. Like no. you just wouldn't get them sitting down for two or three hours waiting for their old man to come out of the pub. That's true. That wasn't such a good thing, I don't think. But no, I agree. nonetheless, I had time to Process. conjure up ideas, you know, entertain myself, think of wonderful things to do. It was plan. 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 It was uh, it was good it was yeah. good for the mind. Yeah. That's what yeah. we don't have time out. Oh, I'm pontificating, am I? No, no, am no. I, am I sounding like an oldie? You are, but that's all right. We're all sounding old, I'm afraid. But getting back to you. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Getting back to you. So, so if you, if you, couldn't, if you didn't get back into medicine, and you couldn't write, what would you be? What would you do? Oh, I'd work because I wouldn't not work. Of course, but what would you do? What would be your other love apart from dancing? <laughs> <laughs> Teach. Right. 
I love to teach writing and I love to teach creativity. And I actually teach empathy too. I've gone into schools and taught wow. empathy, which is a radical concept. That's a tricky mm. subject. Well, it's not. What I do is um, <clears throat> I take, I try to get them kids to primary school kids to feel like what it's like to be old or have a disability or even a minor one and so gardening gloves and I get them to use um, small mobile phones and trying to dial as though you have arthritic fingers you put industrial hearing things on so you can't quite hear a conversation you're hearing a muffled that that does simulate hearing impairment Um, safety goggles with contact overlapped on it and so they own, they don't have central vision they just have peripheral vision which is like macular degeneration so they have to turn their heads to see uh, elastics on the kids ankles and then make them walk and that's to simulate like a parkinson or an unsteady gait and then if they have to go upstairs they realize how exhausting that is to do that with your wow. ankles bound and then so you have separate stations in the classroom and then the kids have to do a task um, or unzip unzip a little zipper purse and count out coins with the gardening gloves on as near impossible and that's like what it's like with arthritic fingers and so and then I say imagine if schools just come out and there are 45 school kids in the line behind you how are you feeling and of course they feel frightened and pressured and the kids with the ankle elastics are scared they're going to be pushed over and it really is interesting then I get them to write um, what it was like to have those issues, to not be included in the conversation, to not be able to see, read properly, mm. all those sort of things. And it's very interesting. Often the kids with the higher IQs are the worst at it because they will try and, I'll say, dial this number. They'll, they'll spend the whole time trying to dial that specific number and miss the whole point. And some of the kids who don't do as well in school are the best interpreters of that and I then look at the writing the teachers often then give me the writing after and I'll write notes on it for each of those children and interestingly the brighter kids will regurgitate what we did as as a relay um, they're replaying what we did as a narrative whereas the kids who aren't necessarily academically bright or gifted will say oh my gosh now I know why Nana wears elastic skirts now I know why Poppy won't ever wear anything with a zipper in it. Now I know why Nana doesn't like to go to the school to shops after school with me. She goes when everyone's at school. So All those sort of things. Of Interesting. Uh, it's not uniform, but I've, that has really struck me, that some of the kids who are deemed less um, academic or poorer writers mm. get it. So I think that's something yeah. that everyone can learn from. And if there, was, if there was one thing you'd want for the world, what would that be? Apart from world peace. More kindness. It doesn't take much to smile at someone or be kind. It's free Mm. and it can make the world a difference to someone. Catherine, it's been fantastic. Just to finish off, we always finish off with a song Mm. and yours is Freeze Frame by (laughs) Jake. Yeah, Freeze Frame. I love that song. It is such a good thing to dance to. That's what it is. It's the dancing. It is the dancing because I remember hearing it for the very first time thinking that is so catchy. I mean, it's really difficult. You can't pick a favourite child or a favourite song Mm. because everyone is a moment in time and it's a part of your history. Sure. And I just think the first time I heard that, I thought it was so happy and centrefold had come out before Mm. that, I think. Yeah. 
and I like the Jay Giles band Centerfold, but this one I just thought was so happy and, and perky and you couldn't stand still to it. So and I still it. can't. So here it is. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you very much, Brett and Thanks, George. Catherine.